Good evening and welcome uh, to the fourth of five installments of the 2016-2017 Faith in Life Lecture Series. Uh, my name is Tim Westermeyer. I'm the senior pastor here at St. Philip Deacon, and on behalf of St. Philip Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran of Plymouth, which jointly present these events, it's my privilege to welcome you here tonight. Um, I always like to begin by asking how many of you have never been to a Faith in Life event before? If you could raise your hand. Wow, a lot. Wonderful. Well, a special welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here. Um, for those of you who have followed this series for the last 14 years, you know we've cast a broad net. We've brought in doctors and lawyers. We even had a politician once upon a time ago. Um, <laughs> we've had, as I was reflecting on tonight, though, we have had a lot of authors uh, and different types of authors. We've had historians, we've had poets, we've had playwrights. Uh, we've had a couple of fictional writers. Uh, one, a gentleman, Ralph McInerney, who is the author of the Father Dowling series. He's the only other mystery writer that we've had that I know of. And we also were privileged to have Marilyn Robinson, and tonight's speaker and I were chatting about that. We're both big fans of hers. But uh, tonight we're thrilled that we can present um, a local author who uh, is clearly beloved, not only by the presence of all of you, but he has been suggested repeatedly uh, by folks over the years, so I'm glad we finally were able to make it work. I always like to lift up one or two things off of the typical biography about our speakers, so two things I will mention, actually three things. Did you say it'll be your 44th? So it'll be his fourth, and Diane, where are you? His wife. Oh, she's way in the back. So they're celebrating their 44th anniversary tomorrow. So that's one thing. The other is that he spent some time growing up in a town called Worthington, Ohio. Oh. Okay, Debbie, I'll introduce you to my aunt and uncle, Howard and Doris, later, who are also here, who live in Worthington. So they had a nice chat before this. And the final thing is that he's afraid of the dark. <laughs> Will you help me uh, welcome William Kent Kruger? Thanks so much, Tim. What a pleasure it is to be here this evening. Thank you so much for the invitation to be a part of the series, Tim. Thanks, everybody, for, for turning out tonight. Thank you for the musicians for that lovely music that... Uh, yeah, thank you very much. You know, I was honest with uh, Tim when we were talking today, and I told him that uh, prior to my being invited to speak here, I, I really wasn't aware of this series. Um, and after Tim invited me, I began uh, doing a little research, and when I saw the illustrious list of past speakers, I have to tell you, hmm, I kind of admired myself for <laughs> being a part of that list, you know? <laughs> so, thank you, Tim. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of people refer to me as a fiction writer, which is just fine, I do that. But honestly, I think of myself primarily as a storyteller. And what I want to talk about this evening is, is this very important subject for me stories. I want to talk about the importance of stories. I want to talk about how stories um, contribute to our mental health and our, our emotional health and our spiritual health. And I'm going to begin with, uh, by asking what, what's probably going to seem like a very simple question to you. Very simple question, here it is. How many of you think you know how the Bible begins? Go ahead. How many of you think, it's a simple question, how many of you think you know how the Bible begins? Okay. Well, I'm sort of guessing those of you brave enough to, uh, to raise a hand probably believe the Bible, depending upon the, the translation, you believe the Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I have a different take on this. I think the Bible begins before you read that first line. I think it begins even before you crack the cover on that great spiritual text. I think the Bible begins 
with this very seductive whisper that comes to you from that, that book itself. And what it whispers to you is this. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Because isn't that what the Bible is? You know, it's a, a collection of some of the greatest stories ever told. It's the story of the, that wonderful story of the creation. It's the story of, uh, of Noah and the flood, of, of Moses in the Exodus, of Daniel in the lion's den, of, uh, of David in the hot water he gets himself into uh, with God as a result of Bathsheba. And the New Testament, it's that, that wonderful Christmas story, the story of the birth of Jesus, and it's the tragic story of his betrayal and his crucifixion. And it's the glorious story of the resurrection. Story after story after story. And just think about it for a moment. Three of the great religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all draw inspiration from many of the same biblical stories. I, uh, I get emails... Uh, often from people who like my work and want to tell me so. Thank you, Lord. Um, and I'm, I'm going to read you uh, a, a brief excerpt from an email I received recently from a guy who was writing to tell me he, uh, that he sincerely enjoyed a book I've written, a book called Ordinary Grace. And among the many things he had to say, he had a few things to say about sermons and stories. And this was what he wrote me. Dear Kent, I'm a very abbreviated form. Dear Kent, I attend a Unitarian church, and while the minister there gives brilliant and challenging sermons, um, it's always the stories I remember. I don't care how many great ideas she talks about, and I may agree with, they come and go in my memory, and just the stories remain. I don't know about you, but boy does that ring true for me. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, venture that probably most of us here this evening didn't come to an understanding of right and wrong, uh, our understanding of, of morality as a result of anything we heard preached to us from a pulpit. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that we probably didn't come to it as a result of some intellectual discussion that we had in college about Kierkegaard or, or Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine or, or Aristotle. I'm willing to bet that most of us came to our understanding, our first understanding of what's right and what's wrong as a result of the stories that were read to us or that we we read ourselves when we were children, and it had a, a profound impact on us. That's certainly true in my case. My first understanding of what it was to do the right thing came as a result of a book that was read to me when I was five years old and was written by a guy who called himself Dr. Seuss. <laughs> the book, Horton Hatches the Egg. Okay, for those of you who uh, may not be uh, particularly familiar with that, great moral treatise. Um, here's the story of Hort, Horton Hatches the Egg. So, it begins with this lazy bird named Maisie sitting uh, on an egg on a nest in a tree waiting for the egg to hatch. And Maisie is bored out of her mind. She would rather be anywhere than sitting on that egg waiting for it to hatch. And then along comes Horton, who is really a very good-hearted elephant. And Maisie convinces Horton to sit on the egg for a while to give her a rest. So Horton settles his huge bulk on that fragile little egg. And just before Maisie takes off, he promises her absolutely that he'll be there when she returns. But Maisie has no intention of ever coming back. So there Horton sits night and day, through rain and snow, and the other animals of the forest make fun of him. Some hunters show up, and they're so amazed to see this elephant sitting on this fragile egg that instead of, of shooting him, they capture him. And they take him and the nest and the egg and that little tree, and they sail across the ocean, and they sell Horton to a circus as a sideshow exhibit. And through all of this terrible experience, Horton continues to repeat to himself this beautiful little mantra. 
I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. So, one day Maisie is flying around, and she happens to spot Horton down there. So she circles down to him, and just about the time she arrives there, the egg hatches. And out comes not a Maisie bird, but a beautiful little elephant bird (laughs) that looks exactly like Horton. And at the end of the story, Horton and his little hatchling head home, and Horton is happy 100%. (laughs) So after I I had that book read to me, uh, my parents read to me, Horton hears a who, from which I learned A person's a person, no matter how small. Which has always seemed to me um, a dictum that if we truly lived by it would make this world such a better place. You know, I I learned an enormous amount about what it was to be a good elephant from Horton and what it was to be a a good human being. Um... You know, we've all seen those uh, bumper stickers on cars that go, WWJD, what would Jesus do? The bumper sticker on my car reads, WWHD, what would Horton do? (laughs) Jesus. Jesus understood the power of stories. How did Jesus teach? He taught in parables, simple stories with powerful truths at the heart of them. You know, depending upon how you characterize them, there are um, more than two dozen parables recounted in the Gospels. You know, we know so many of them. Uh, uh, the parable of the sower, the parable of the, uh, the um, mustard seed, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. My favorite parable is the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, quick recounting of the parable of the prodigal son, because for, for those of you who haven't been to church in quite a while. Um, so there is, a, there is a rich landowner, and he decides he's going to give part of his wealth to his two sons. So he divides the wealth between the two of them. And one son, the good son, stays there, helps his father tend the land, does what his community has taught him is the right thing to do. The other son takes off, he goes far away, and becomes a wastrel, lives a a dissolute life, so much so that eventually he's to the point where he is on the brink of selling himself into slavery to pay for the debts that he has accumulated. But rather than do that, he finally decides he will go back home and prostrate himself before his father and ask for forgiveness. Long before he reaches home, word of his arrival comes to his father. And his father orders a feast prepared in honor of this prodigal son. Which really ticks off the good son. And he says to dad, I, I stayed, I did what I was supposed to do, and you've never thrown a feast like this in my honor. And the father says to him, I love you both. I love my sons equally but one of you was lost to me, and now he is found. And that's what I'm celebrating. I love that parable for a number of reasons. As a storyteller, I love it because it's a story that can be seen from a number of different viewpoints. It's a story that can be seen as the father's story. What parent among us hasn't hasn't had a child become wayward, and, and we feel like, that child has been lost to us. And we feel that incredible, that incredible joy when, when that child finally comes back. It can be seen as the story of the prodigal son himself, this, this kid who goes off to have a, a good time in life because that's what kids do. And he blows it. And his life goes down the tubes. And all he wants in the end is to be able to go back and be accepted and loved again. And it can be seen as the story of the good son who stayed and did what he was supposed to do, followed all of the rules, and he gets no credit for it. 
Or it can be seen as the story of this, this whole interesting, complex family dynamic. But there's another reason I love the, the parable of the sower, or of, of the uh, prodigal son. And that's because I have my own story, my own parable of the prodigal son. Although in my case, it's the parable, uh, parable of the prodigal sister. My sister married a sociopath. Seriously, this guy was certifiably nuts. We knew it, and later my sister confessed that she knew it too, but she went ahead and went through with the wedding. Uh, Afterward, things progressed pretty much as you might expect. Uh, He was unfaithful to her, he lied to her, they separated, they got back together, and finally they got divorced, which left my sister in California all alone, trying to raise by herself a very, very young daughter. Now, my wife and I were living here in the Twin Cities in St. Paul at that time. She was going to law school. And we were sharing a house with my parents who were helping us as, uh, as uh, Diane went through law school, helping us with the kids and, and all the, the things that, uh, that needed seeing to. And when word of my sister's situation reached us, my father called a family council and we all sat down around the table. And my father proposed that we reach out to my sister and ask her to come here and join us in the house we were sharing. My response was not one of my finer moments. Um, (laughs) I was really like the good son, you know. Hey, wait a minute. I followed the rules. We followed the rules. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're good kids. My sister, she made her bed. Let her lie in it. Yeah, I don't like myself very much when I tell this story. (laughs) But my father, my father counseled unconditional love and forgiveness. And fortunately, in the end, his wise counsel prevailed. And my sister came and joined us in this very large communal household. And I never really realized the true wisdom of my father's advice until I had children of my own who grew up and went off and screwed up in many ways, as children will, and, uh, and I realized how willing I was to open my arms and welcome them back. So we think of stories primarily as entertainment. But clearly, stories also enlighten us. That's not all they do. Stories encourage us. I don't know how many of you know the story of uh, Robert the Bruce and the persistent little spider. It was a story my father told me when I was quite young, and I have always remembered it. For those of you who don't know the story of Robert the Bruce and the persistent little spider, it goes like this. Robert the Bruce ascended to the, uh, to the Scottish throne in, I think it was 1306. And this was at the time when Scotland was under that tyrannical English, uh, the rule of, uh, of English rule, tyrannical thumb of English rule. And they've been trying forever to free themselves from that. You guys remember the movie Braveheart? Yet, uh, Mel Gibson. It's the story of William Wallace, who fought courageously trying to free the Scots. If you saw the movie, you know how how well that went for him. Um, And when he failed, Robert the Bruce took up that that struggle. And uh, twice he led his armies against the English. And twice he was defeated. And after that second defeat, he took tail and ran with the, the English hot on, his, uh, hot on the trail trying to capture him. And Robert the Bruce, so the story goes, one night when he's on the lamb, seeks refuge in an abandoned cottage in the highland. And while he's in that cottage, licking his wounds and, and resting up and trying to figure what the hell he's going to do next, he happens to see a spider in the rafters above him attempting to spin a web. And the spider's trying to cast a thread, a single thread from one rafter to the next in order to lay the foundation for the web it's going to spin. And six times that spider casts its thread and six times it fails. But on the seventh time 
it succeeds and begins to spin a beautiful web. And Robert the Bruce, so the story goes, taking, taking heart and encouragement from that little spider's example, decides he's going to take to the field once again and lead his armies against the English. And he does, and this time he prevails. He frees Scotland. It's a wonderful story. Is it true? Who cares? <laughs> it's a wonderful story with an important truth at the heart of it. Um, I love that quote by Albert Camus, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. So stories entertain us and they encourage us and they enlighten us, but stories also inspire us. I'm going to tell you a story about, about a great piece of fiction and the inspiration that came from it. Inspiration in the end gone horribly awry. So, when I was in the fifth grade, toward the end of that year, our, uh, our teacher read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer to our class for half an hour every day after lunch. This was toward the end of the year. Half a day, half an hour every day after lunch. I loved that book. I mean, here was this kid who was like me, and he was having all these great adventures on the banks of the Mississippi River. So I was living on a farm just outside of town, and uh, there was this little creek that ran through our property, Riley Creek, and uh, uh, on the other side of the creek was another farmhouse uh, where the Gratzes lived, and uh, the Gratzes had two boys, uh, one of whom was my age and the older was my, my brother's age. And when school was out and summer came around, I pitched the idea to the Gratz boys and my brother that we build a raft and set sail on Riley Creek. <laughs> Two miles down, uh, down the creek was the town where we all went to school, and just beyond that, Riley Creek, Riley Creek emptied itself into... Uh, a much larger river, and if we followed that, it would take us all the way to Lake Erie. They bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we spent several days scavenging uh, wood and pounding it together with nails and uh, sometimes lashing it together, and we had this, this beautiful contraption Put together, we carried it down to Riley Creek, and we set it in the water under, the, under a bridge that spanned the creek, and we hung a rope down from the bridge so that we could get down to the raft, and then we drew straws to see who would be the first to try out our glorious little creation. My brother drew the long straw. So he kicked off his uh, high-top keds, my mother would have killed us if we'd come home with muddy shoes. He rolled up his pants, and he climbed down the rope. And when he got down there, holding tightly to the rope, he put out one bare foot to test the stability of the raft. It held. Still holding tightly to the rope, he put the other bare foot on the raft. It held. Finally, he decided it was time and he let go of the rope. And the raft immediately disappeared beneath the brown water of Riley Creek. <laughs> and as it went under, it tipped and it threw my brother out, and he disappeared beneath the brown water of Riley Creek, which was really not a terrible thing, because you know, Riley Creek was like three feet deep there. <laughs> and he came up sputtering and spitting brown water, covered in all that muck from the, from the bottom of the creek. And that was pretty much the end of, uh, of our glorious expedition. Uh, but, you know, I, I, took, I took two things away from that uh, experience. And the first was this. No matter how hard I might imagine it, Riley Creek would never be the Mississippi River. <laughs> and the other was this. An image that I have carried with me 
my whole life of the biggest, blackest leech I have ever seen, which had attached itself to my brother's barefoot. I had never heard my brother scream like a baby before. <laughs> and I have never let him forget that he did it. <laughs> you know, stories, stories have been important to who we are as human beings since we first learned how to communicate with one another. Across countless millennia, stories have entertained us and enlightened us and encouraged us and inspired us. I really, honestly, I really have come to believe that stories are every bit as important to, to our living, to our life, as is breathing. And I have to tell you, as a storyteller, I've come to believe that the most promising, the most seductive, maybe even most important words you're ever going to hear are these. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. Thank you. Thank you, very, thank you very much. I'll let you rest your voice for one second while I make a couple of announcements. And um, we will have a chance uh, in the next couple minutes for some Q&A. There are microphones to my right and left. So if you'd like to ask uh, William Kent Kruger a question, please be thinking about that now. Uh, before we get to that, though, just a few quick announcements. I always like to mention our next event. So our next and final event for this year's season uh, will feature another writer, uh, Lauren Winner, on Faith and Metaphor on Thursday, May 4th. Uh, if you do not currently get our emails, uh, you can sign up for those at faith-and-life.org. You can also find us on Facebook. Um, you're also welcome to turn in one of these green sheets with your email if you'd like us to alert you to upcoming events. Um, you can also use these green sheets uh, to suggest future speakers. We're actually hard at work right now uh, framing up next year's series. Uh, we have, uh, I would say, two and a half of our speakers set for next year. Um, I want to see the half yeah, that's speaker, right. yeah. <laughs> we're working on the other two and a half right now. Um, I also always like to thank um, the people who make this series possible since its beginning. Uh, this event, these events, have not, they're not a part of the church budget. They are made possible entirely by the generosity of individuals and organizations, many of whom are here tonight. Uh, they're listed in your program. I hope we work really hard not to make mistakes. I hope we don't have any mistakes in there tonight. If we do, please let me know. But let me just list some of our corporate sponsors, Mastercraft Labels, Productivity Inc., uh, Rapid Packaging, Thrivent Financial, Cressa, Honeybee Capital, Motive Action, Sparky, uh, Anselm House, Fuzzy Duck, Luther Seminary, and then Mount Olivet and St. Philip Deacon, as well as all of the individuals you see there. Again, many of our uh, financial supporters are here tonight. Will you join me in thanking them? Kent already said a thanks, but I also like to thank periodically our good friend Jeff Elstad, who plays the music before and after events. With, I think, one or two exceptions, Jeff has been at every single event since the uh, beginning of this series, so thank you, Jeff. And hopefully I won't mute him on the way out tonight. Last time he plugged in and he, you couldn't hear him, so he just went home. Um, so remind, kick, someone kick me if you can't hear him at the end. Um, uh, oh, let me also thank um, Subtext Bookstores, uh, which is an independent bookseller in St. Paul, and Sarah is here tonight from, uh, from there and uh, making available some of uh, Kent's uh, books, so please visit her um, after we're done here. Okay, so we've got an, a nice amount of time for some questions, um, so if we have any, let them begin.
Before I take the first question, can I just say one thing? Yes. <laughs> You're such a good host. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Subtext Books is your bookseller this evening, and Subtext Books is an independent bookstore. I love independent bookstores. When I was a kid, maybe like a lot of you, um, every small town had a bookstore. Every neighborhood had a bookstore uh, that made you feel comfortable and welcomed, and, and the people in there guided you in the things that you ought to be reading. I still remember the first book I ever bought with my own money, The Master of Belantre. By, uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And then Barnes & Noble came along and Borders came along, and then Amazon. And those bookstores we all grew up with and loved so much began to disappear. And then uh, Borders went the way of the, uh, the dodo bird. And uh, if you believe the prognosticators, Barnes & Noble is on the ropes. And with Barnes & Noble and Borders out of the picture, do you know who that leaves left? That leaves that gigantic, faceless corporate entity called Amazon making the vast number of choices about the books that are going to be available to us to read. Um, I don't know about you. <laughs> Would you rather have Amazon or your independent booksellers helping guide what, what we have to read? So I, I encourage all of you, rather than reaching for that easy button, and ordering from Amazon, go to your local bookseller, the real brick and mortar thing. Order your book, buy your book, be guided by their wisdom. Um, help, help the independent booksellers stay alive. And let's give our booksellers a big hand. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Anybody have a question? And if there are no questions, Tim has said he'll buy us all a beer down. Uh... <laughs> well, as long as you brought that up. Um... Oh, uh, yes, good. Number 1,592 on the waiting list for this tender land. <laughs> and when will it be released? Oh, what an interesting question. And I love the lead-in. So for those of you who didn't hear it, her lead-in was this. I'm number 1,962 on the waiting list for a novel which will come out at some point of mine called This Tender Land. And she's just wondering when the hell it's going to come out. <laughs> you know, I love this question. I'm going to tell you the story of this tender land. Here it is. I wrote a book called uh, Ordinary Grace. Um, for those of you who haven't read Ordinary Grace, it's very different from my Cork O'Connor series. Uh, very simple story. It takes place in the summer of 1961 in a small town deep in the very beautiful Minnesota River Valley. It's the story of a Methodist minister whose beloved child is murdered. That's the compelling mystery component. But at heart, it's really the story of what that terrible tragedy does to this man's faith, his family, and ultimately the entire fabric of this small town in which he lives. Writing Ordinary Grace was a, a, a very risky proposition for me because a long time ago my publisher called me out to, to New York City, sat me down and said, Kent, we only want Cork O'Connor novels from you. And the reason for that was this. Um, the only other book that I've written that's not a part of my Cork O'Connor series is a book called The Devil's Bed. Anybody here read The Devil's Bed? Okay, I see, like six of you. Uh, <laughs> Which is, which is a lot. <laughs> Nobody read The Devil's Bed. And, the, and they stayed away from it, not because it wasn't a good book, it got great reviews, but they stayed away from it because Cork O'Connor wasn't in it. And one of the problems, one of the pitfalls of writing a, a series with a popular protagonist at the heart of it is, readers are often unwilling to follow you to a place without that guy. So, uh, so it was after that sales debacle that my publisher called me out to New York City, set me down and said, Kent, um, so when the story idea came to me that wasn't a Cork O'Connor novel, um, I knew it was going to be a very risky proposition to write it. Clearly my publisher didn't want it. I had no idea if anybody else would be interested, but it was a story that spoke to me in such a deep, compelling way that I had to write it. So when I finished that manuscript, 
Uh, despite the fact that my publisher didn't want it, I sent it off to my editor in New York City anyway. And about three weeks after that, I got an, uh, an email from her that went something like this, Dear Kent, I've been reading the manuscript for Ordinary Grace on the subway on my way to work every morning, and I've been reading it on the subway on my way home every night. But I've decided I can't do that anymore because people on the subway don't understand why I'm crying. Uh, she said, I love this book, and of course we'll publish it. And they did. And the reception has been uh, absolutely marvelous. Ordinary Grace ha has uh, outsold any individual Cork O'Connor novel, and the way it's going, it's on track at some point to outsell my entire Cork O'Connor oeuvre. And when my publisher saw how well this not Cork O'Connor book did, <laughs> boy, did they want another one. Uh, so uh, I signed a contract for the companion novel to Ordinary Grace. They paid me a shitload of money. <laughs> and I spent the next two years writing the manuscript for what I thought would be the companion novel to Ordinary Grace. That manuscript was due to my publisher a year ago last uh, August. Uh, two months before the deadline, I set up a, a meeting with my agent in Chicago to talk about revisions to the manuscript. There were problems with it. She knew it. I knew it. And two days before I met with her, uh, I, I sent her an email saying, basically, when we get together, I don't want to talk about how we revise this. I want to talk about how we keep it from being published. Because it wasn't the story I'd imagined it, it would be. I didn't know how to make it that story. And frankly, I wasn't, I wasn't really interested at that point. I have a great agent. Um, she renegotiated things, so now I have a different deadline date for that particular um, entry. But here's, here's the thing I learned from that. I love when I talk to writers about this, because you might not get it, but a, but a writer will. And here it is. If you're a writer, I don't care whether you, you think of yourself as a romance writer or a mystery writer or a science fiction writer or a literary writer. I think that we all ought to think of ourselves as artists and words are a medium. And if we do that, if we're true to that, what that means is we ought to always be trying to grow as artists. We ought to always be trying to push the limits. And if we're doing that, what that means is very often we're going to be out there walking a dangerous edge. And if we do that, what it means is we're going to risk a fall. I fell. Then the question I had to ask myself was, did I fail? And I have to tell you, honestly, I've never thought of that experience as a failure. For me, it's always been simply another another place I visited in this journey that I'm on as a writer. But here's the really beautiful thing that came from that. When I let go of all of the expectations about what that, that story was going to be, should be, I felt free and I saw the story I should have been writing, this tender land. And that's what I'm at work on now uh, between my Cork O'Connor obligations. It's scheduled now for publication in uh, the fall of 2019. God willing. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> what else? Uh, I have a question. Sure. Because um, Ordinary Grace is so different from your Cork O'Connor books, were, did you receive some inspiration from a personal um, experience? Yeah, you know, Ordinary Grace, um, for those of you who read Ordinary Grace, this is what I, one of the things that I wanted to do with Ordinary Grace was I'd been looking for a story for a long time that would allow me to go back and recall an important period in my own life, the summer I was 13 years old. For a lot of reasons uh, across the whole course of my life, I remembered vividly the summer I was 13 years old. And so I wanted to find a story that would allow me to go back and recall it and evoke it in such a way that I could use bits and pieces of my own life, my own experience, to create that story. So for those of you who've read it, the Drum family, that's my family. Mm. The town of New Bremen, uh, that's a reflection of the, all the Midwestern towns that I grew up in as an adolescent. Uh, so many of the places in the story were places I actually experienced. The quarry where the kids swam, mm. I swam in that quarry. The pharmacy where they drink root beer. I sipped Richardson's root beer in that pharmacy in Bluffton, Ohio. Um, 
And so much of the inspiration for the story came from my life and wanting to explore my life and aspects of my life that I hadn't really taken a very good look at. And the other thing I wanted to do with that was write a story that would allow me to explore more deeply the whole question of the importance of the divine in our lives, the importance of the spiritual journey we are all on. And I have to tell you, in terms of inspiration, this was the most extraordinary writing experience I've ever had. Um, when I write a Corp O'Connor novel, typically I plan the novel out in advance. I think about it for many weeks, many months sometimes. So by the time I sit down to write the story, I know how it begins, I know how it ends, I know who did what to whom and why. Um, I know all of the salient points of the story and so that I can sit down and write it pretty simply. Ordinary Grace was not like that. I knew four things going into Ordinary Grace. I knew I was going to be writing about my life. I knew I was going to be writing about a town I knew. I knew I was going to be writing about the spiritual journey. And I knew that there was going to be something terrible that happened to this family that threatened to tear it apart. Because I write murder mysteries, I was pretty sure somebody was going to bite the dust. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know who that was going to be. And I sat down to write the book, and the book revealed its That story revealed itself to me in a way that, quite honestly, I have always thought I was receiving inspiration from, from beyond myself, outside myself. Um, there were, honest to God, there were moments when I came out of the writing of it that I felt like I'd been involved in a prayer. I felt calm and full of hope and trust. Just, I hope with prayer. <laughs> no, no, it does that for me. I don't know if it does it for you guys. Thank yeah. you. Did, did I answer your question? Yes. Yeah, in, in a long-winded way. <laughs> what else? Yeah, we've got a hand over here. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote Ordinary... I'm, I'm a Methodist, for those of you who aren't aware of that. Do you know... Would you step up to the microphone and just repeat it for everybody? Thank you. I asked this question about two years ago at Brookdale Library when Ordinary Grace was more new. And I said, here you are, and considering where we are this evening, I said, I think it bears repeating. I said, here we are in Minnesota. Probably nowhere else can be more a congregation of Lutherans singing, Lutherans singing four-part harmony. But <laughs> I responded to the ministers at it being Methodist, and I asked for a comment on that. Sure. Um. Gee, if I were Lutheran, the minister would have been Lutheran. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to be a Lutheran. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty familiar at this point with what it's like to be a Methodist. Honest to God, I don't know what we believe. But I know what happens on, in church on Sunday, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I chose uh, a Methodist uh, because of that and also because... I have um, some good friends who are retired Methodist pastors who began their ministerial careers serving rural communities, rural charges. And boy, did I talk to those guys a lot to find out what it was like to be a minister in a small town, particularly if you have a family. And those guys were so helpful. One of the many blessings I received in the course of writing this story. What else? Quick, rush to the microphone. First of all, I love your books. Thank you. Secondly, I kind of like you too. <laughs> thank you. Um, that's a compliment coming from you. Um, there seems to be a strong Native American um, theme running through some of your books. I'm thinking Windigo Island, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, what influenced you with um, going into their culture and their lives? Sure. 
a very reasonable question. For those of you who aren't familiar with my Cork O'Connor series, um, I set that in the great north woods of Minnesota. Um, my protagonist, Corcoran O'Connor, is the former sheriff of the fictional Tamarack County, Minnesota. He's a man of mixed heritage. He's part Irish-American and he's part Ojibwe. And as a result of that, and largely because of the area in which I, I set my work, a lot of the stories that I write come from issues that rise out of the interface of those two cultures. I write about the Ojibwe uh, for this reason. I'm not native to Minnesota. Uh, I think you know that by now from the stories that I've told. When I was a kid, I lived all over the place. I was really part of a gypsy family. Uh, but when my wife and I came to the Twin Cities so that she could go to the U of M Law School, and we first set foot in Minnesota, um, I knew I'd found my home. I fell in love with this place. So I always knew that when I got serious about my writing, it was going to be a homage somehow to this adopted home of mine. Shortly thereafter, we began doing what lots of folks in the Twin Cities do. We began spending uh, a summer vacation up in the great north woods. Uh, we began spending a part of every summer at a YM YMCA camp north of Ely, a place called Camp de Nord, which is, for those of you who don't know it, literally across the road from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And when I discovered that remarkable territory, I knew that's what I wanted to write about. When I took a, a, a much closer look, deeper look at northern Minnesota, it seemed to me that you couldn't write a true story set in northern Minnesota without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the story because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's powerful. So I decided I was going to use the Ojibwe somehow in my story. What did I know about the Ojibwe? Probably as much as most of you white folks know, you know? <laughs> Nothing. Um, but I was a cultural anthropology major in college, so the idea of learning about a culture not my own was really exciting. So I began by doing what every good academic does. I began by reading. I read everything I could get my hands on. And in the course of that research, I began to get to know members of the Ojibwe community and over the years have formed some pretty tight relationships with folks inside uh, the Ojibwe culture. Um, whenever I can, I have an Ojibwe reader vet my work to make sure I don't say anything too stupid or worse, offensive. Um, and, uh, and the decision to use the Ojibwe as an element of my, my mysteries, my stories, was one of the best decisions I could have made. Um, learning about their culture, um, learning about the spiritual connections has greatly influenced how I, how I go about creating my stories. Does that answer your question? I'm going to take your time for two questions, if I might. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, John Hassler, who was... Oh, I love Hassler's work. <laughs> well, he also wrote about small town Minnesota, and I wonder if you might compare your stories with his. And the second question is, what do you read? Okay. So the first question was, how would I compare my stories to Hassler's? Yeah, not a lot of people get murdered in Hassler's stories. <laughs> Which is probably a more typical small-town Minnesota experience. <laughs> Hassler was a wonderful observer of people and, uh, and the interactions that take place, particularly in small towns. And he wrote about it beautifully. He wrote about it with a loving heart. I think Hassler and I are similar in that respect in that the landscape I write about, northern Minnesota, I try to write about with a loving heart. Um, Hassler's stories rise very much out of the characters involved, as every good story should. I think my stories also rise very much out of the characters involved. It's just that my characters behave a little differently toward one another <laughs> than John Hassler's. Uh, Hassler is the first Minnesota author I discovered when I, when I came here, and Staggerford continues to be one of my favorite all-time novels. Uh, what do I read? These days I read books that you guys will see 8 to 12 months from now. I read what are called bound galleys, or ARCs, advanced readers' copies, of books that uh, my editor, my agent, friends of mine, have asked me to look at 
and read with the idea of offering a dust jacket quote, what we call a blurb. Um, if I'm not doing that's probably 90% of my reading time these days. If I'm not doing that, I read Midwestern authors. I, Hassler. I love Midwestern authors. I think a case can be made that there is, in fact, a Midwest voice in literature. It's a very spare voice, but very elegant, um, very eloquent. And, uh, and I think it rises profoundly, as Hassler's work does, out of an understanding of our relationship to this land that we occupy. We, we take pride in shaping our land. We shape the land, but the truth is the land shapes us. And uh, so Marilyn Robinson, uh, we were just talking about earlier. I love Marilyn Robinson's work, very much grounded in the Midwest. Um, Kent Harreff, Plain Song, Eventide, Benediction. Guy you've probably never heard of, guy named Kent Myers. Write his name down, Kent Myers. He's an author born in southwestern Minnesota. He teaches now at Spearfish, and he's one of the finest writers at work today, and nobody's ever heard of him, Kent Myers. So those are some of the people I read. When I'm writing in the mystery genre, I read a lot of dark people that I probably don't want to tell you about. <laughs> yeah. I would first of all like to say thank you. Ordinary Grace um, does a lot of things for one, but it also comforts. Oh, thank you. And if you'll bear with me, I would like to read you a couple paragraphs, and I'd like to know where in your soul they came from. Sure. This is the minister where he is talking at his daughter's funeral. And can you hear me? Is this better? Yeah. Okay. In your dark night, I urge you to hold to your faith, to embrace hope, and to bear your love before you like a burning candle, for I promise that it will light your way. And whether you believe in miracles or not, I can guarantee that you will experience one. It may not be the miracle you've prayed for. God probably won't undo what's been done. The miracle is this, that you will rise in the morning and be able to see the startling beauty of the day. Jesus suffered the dark night and death on the third day he rose again from the grace of his loving Father, for each of us, the sun sets and the sun also rises through the grace of our Lord. We can endure our own dark night and rise to the dawning of a new day and rejoice. I invite you, my brothers and sisters, to rejoice with me in the divine grace of the Lord and in the beauty of this morning, which he has given us. Um, for me, who experienced the loss of a daughter-in-law, I dog-eared this page and kept it near me. I thank you very much for it. Where did it come from? <laughs> thank you for sharing that. One of the blessings that's come to me as a result of having written Ordinary Grace is um, I hear from folks all the time um, sharing with me the comfort they received in this story. When you think about the fact that it's a story of a terrible tragedy, the idea that in the end it gives comfort was exactly what I was shooting for. And I gotta tell you, when you're a storyteller, if you're really a storyteller and you really give yourself fully to the story, there are times when you go to a place that's below conscious thought. You're somewhere else. And the things that come to you come from some place else. And storytellers try not to question where that place is or where these things come from and just accept them as blessings. And so much of what Nathan is all about and what he says and, and the comfort that he offers in his words, even, if, even when he is in terrible pain, came from another place. I have never experienced the kind of tragedy that Nathan Drum and the Drum family experiences, but somehow I was able to imagine it and to find the words so that it feels real to those people who have experienced it. Thank you, Lord. That's all I can say.
I haven't read Ordinary Grace, but my wife has. I like your wife. (laughs) I'm not so sure about you. (laughs) And that's the reason we're here tonight. Uh, She very much enjoys your visits to the AAUW. Oh, good, good, That's where she bought your book. Um, I am struck by this by this audience being totally captured by listening to your stories and your thoughts about how you conjured them up and so forth. But I thought about, I was a teacher many years ago and then went into some other work, including the YMCA, as you mentioned. But um, I've been thinking about how could we use stories more in our public education system throughout the system to get kid, to have kids more involved and interested in what they were learning and um, wondered what your comments may, might be about that. How could we use it more in public education to, for motivation and to probably up our graduation rates? Yeah, what a great question. I'm not sure that I'm I have the credentials to answer it completely, but off the top of my head, this is what I would say. It's just like a minister minister preaching from a pulpit. What the minister says theologically, ideologically, sort of glances off us. But when the minister tells a story, it makes sense. It soaks deep. So why not have people come into to schools who've experienced, who've been there, done that, to tell their stories and to share their stories? Um, how many of you, when you were growing up, I know this sounds so cornball, but basically sat at, at the knees of your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, listened to the stories they told about when they were growing up and the things that they did, And you still remember those stories. They weren't yours, but you still remember those stories and the things that they taught you and were meant to teach you. So that would be my first suggestion, is let's bring more people in who've been there and done that to inspire and encourage our children. You know, you get a a kid who grew up in a terrible neighborhood uh, surrounded by all kinds of terrible influences, and somehow found his or her way through that. What a great message. Instead of just saying, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, here I am. I'm here to tell you, you can do that. So, there you go. Off the top of my head. Uh, we're getting pretty close. Let's do, let's do one more. Okay, yeah, last, come on up. Last question here. No pressure. Tim says it's okay. Last, last okay. question. No pressure, I said. Okay. <laughs> uh, I had the honor of, uh, I, I volunteered at a nursing home, and Jean was in the early 90s. Uh, I had all your O'Connor books at home, and after we read a couple others, we got into that series. She wouldn't let me get out of that series. <laughs> God bless and, her. <laughs> uh, at one point I said, you know, there's a little bit of rough language here, but she said, read it just like it is. <laughs> <laughs> So she got the full, the full page, and uh, Red Knife I had bought, and her health went down. I never got to read it to her, uh, but she, her later, she had gone blind because I, I haven't read her her whole life, and so it was just, uh, and I, I'm just honored by what you wrote there for her. Thank you. Oh, you are so welcome. You are so welcome. So we always uh, end with a, a, a small gift to our speakers. It's a little piece of granite. I do want to, before I thank uh, Kent again, and he goes by Kent, just so you're, uh, that's my understanding, correct? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Before I thank him, I do want to thank you all for coming out, especially, again, those of you who are here for the first time. Um, I've never done this before, it occurs to me, but as it happens, I'm preaching this weekend, and I will be telling, as it happens, a story. So, (laughs) you're welcome to come back. (laughs) In the meantime, 
We're so glad you could join us. Oh, thank, thank you so you much. Thank you for coming. Uh, this piece of granite says, with thanks to William Kent Kruger for bringing faith to life, you clearly do that in many ways, and we are grateful. Thank you. Thanks, Scott.